0: a little warm up, but I I'm really am into it now. I use it to follow uh, people or organizations that are really important to me. And so what I've done is over the last year and a half, two years, I've kind of turned the Twitter feed into this steady stream of wisdom from people who I want to learn from and I want to shape me. So there's always interesting articles coming down the pipe or interesting reflections. A few months ago, I started to use Twitter to tweet through the Psalms. So I usually extract information from Twitter, but what I've started to do is just throw some stuff out there as I've made connections with other people and other pastors. And one of the things that I started to do is I started to take a psalm, read it, study it for a little bit and then say, how would I summarize this psalm in 140 characters, not words, characters or less? That's kind of the Twitter's thing. It's short little snippets. And I found it really fun and really challenging. I'm a a little over halfway, And I just kind of hashtag Psalm Tweets, so if you're on Twitter and you're looking for it, you can catch up. There's actually a whole group of people all over the world that use the Psalm Tweets hashtag, and they do the same thing, and it's really neat. Um, But really, really challenging because you get to some of these psalms, especially the longer psalms, and you're like, how do I summarize the full movement and range of what is happening in the psalm. But it's really creatively challenging and the kind of the brevity of Twitter really forces you to think carefully and use every single word and make sure that every single word you use isn't wasted because you've only got 140 characters. Um, I'm thinking, my experience with doing it through the Psalms has got me thinking about maybe I'll do it through other books of the Bible, because just the discipline of reading a chapter of the Bible, or in this case, one Psalm, through the lens of how would I kind of describe what's happening here in like five or six seconds or less, I find really challenging. I find it helps to kind of keep me alert to what's happening in the text and to really push me through to try and really get at the heart and core of um, the the major theme or idea there. Uh, I got the idea to tweet through the Psalms from a Christian academic in Australia called Ben Myers. Um, Ben writes quite uh, broadly on a number of things, but he's kind of a specialist in early church history, early church fathers, the writings of uh, Christian leaders from 1st century to 4th or 5th century. And he did a project called Canon Fodder. Canon meaning the, the canon of scripture, not like a canon. But he called it Canon Fodder. And what he did is he challenged himself to tweet a summary of every book in the Bible. So instead of just having, to, <laughs> having the, the hardship of saying what's happening in this chapter, he said I'm going to take the whole book and I'm going to try and pull as much as I can together and this is my five or six second summation of what this whole book is about. And he completed that, I think, over the course of about a year, a year and a half. And I really appreciated um, his insights and and what he chose to highlight in coming out of certain books. And I think his one on the Psalms is the best. He did 66. I think his one on Psalms is my favorite. This is what he wrote. Maybe. Mark. (laughs) Yes. He wrote this. There we go. Psalms, the invention of antiphony. When my heart broke in two, I taught each part to sing. Isn't that amazing? That was his summation of the Psalms. And I think it is a beautiful, powerful, insightful summation. It's so good. A lot of the book of Psalms deals with brokenheartedness. Arising from all kinds of things, Anger, alienation, disorientation, loss. Um, About a third of the psalms are what are called psalms of lament. These are psalms where someone is coming to God and they're pleading, they're crying out. They're just kind of emotionally naked before God and they have strong anger or a strong sense of injustice that's happening to them or to someone else, and they're going before God, and they're lamenting. They're passionately expressing their sorrow. But one-third of this entire book are psalms with that as a focus. One of the themes of the psalms as we read through it is that our tears and our sorrow has a lot of power. There's something that God can do in and through tears and in and through sorrow, that he cannot do through any other um, emotion that we experience. And New Testament, sorry, Old Testament scholar Walter Walter Brueggemann, who's done a lot of uh, just great writings on the Psalms, he has a. Uh, this would probably be his summation of the th- Psalms, although he didn't tweet this. But he has a saying, and he says, "Without grief, can be no." Without grief, there can be no newness. And that's, see, what he's trying to say is he believes what the Bible teaches, but certainly what the Psalms teach and the Psalms of lament is that the reason we often get stuck in our lives, the reason why we get stuck in our marriages, stuck in our relationships, stuck in our zeal and passion to follow Jesus is that we haven't learned to lament. Somewhere along the line, our heart got broken in two. But we didn't know how or we didn't take the time to stop and learn how to teach both parts to sing. And so we stay stuck. We try and power forward, we try and kind of stiff upper lip and and move ahead, but Walter Brueggemann says if you do that, you're just going to find there's no newness. Without grief, without taking the time to lament, there can't be any newness. One psalm that shows us the power of our tears, the power of Um, And when what God can uniquely do with them and what God is calling us to do with our pain and with our tears is Psalm 126. So I'm going to read that this morning. And I'm actually just really glad that it turned out to be such a nice day when we're talking about a psalm of lament. Because this is, um, I I understand I'm wading into waters that for some people isn't cerebral. it's It's not conceptual. You might be walking in a place right now of a tremendous pain. There might be wounds in your life that are very, very fresh, so I want to be sensitive to that, and I know that this, these kind of messages and these kind of scriptures are hard to embrace um, at the best of times, um, but I was kind of hoping that there would be kind of like a nice sunny day <laughs> that kind of brings a little bit of relief, because you know, when you walk out these doors, you probably don't want dark, cold, snowy, oh, um, And and we're not going to deal in pain the whole time. We're going to start with joy. We're going to get to some good news early. We will move to some, not bad news, but challenging news. But then we're going to end on good news again. Um, But I'm trying to do this sensitively because I know in talking to some of you, some of you are on a journey where um, there's pain and there's heartache that is very, very fresh. Uh, Let me just take a moment to pray for us before I launch into reading through Psalm 126. God, what we do with our pain is so important. What we do with our sorrow and our tears is so important. Would you teach us the wisdom and the power that comes from learning to lament, learning to just pour our hearts before you, the healing that can come from that, the joy that can come from that, the new life that can come from that, God, as we open up your word, specifically this psalm, would you use it to change us and to shape us? In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The first thing the psalm teaches us is that the Christian life is one of deep joy. Verses 1 to 3. We don't know... What the context for this psalm is? I read a lot of commentators, and they're kind of like, "Doesn't we're not, not enough information? We don't have enough information about the psalm to know what had happened. What we do know is something massively, powerfully good has gone on. Um, something has happened where God returned. He's redeemed the fortunes of Zion, which is God's holy city, Jerusalem." So the center symbol of the Jewish people, they they were in kind of some kind of trouble, and God did something definitively, and it was so huge that the psalmist says, "Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy." Life—that was an ancient way of saying life doesn't get any better than this. This was amazing. Like we peaked. We got to witness something that very few generations of people got to witness. It, um, it was symbolically their way of saying, you know, we, when we were in this space, you, you'd try and talk about it and try and have a normal conversation and you would just start singing songs. Songs of joy. It was just amazing. It was a magical time. We were like those who dreamed. And the, and the Hebrew is difficult to translate there, but the, the idea that it's getting at is it was like living in a dream. It was like living in a fantasy world. Everything was right in every dimension. It was awesome. We might say today, I was like it was a mountaintop experience. It was a total spiritual high. It says that then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Right? Other people saw what God did had done in our lives, and they were envious of that blessing. Other people were on the outside looking in and saying, "Holy smokes, are you seeing this? Look what their God has done for them. This is amazing." And and we knew that God had done it. Something incredible had happened, and the pagan non-believers knew that it was God and we knew that it was God. It was utterly unrepeatable. And there's a lot of good news here. And I want to say this to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you are thinking about becoming a Christian, you are investigating things of faith. If you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you are embarking on a journey to follow Jesus and that will lead you into deep and sometimes immeasurable joy. The Christian life is full of deep joy. The Christian life is so exciting because God begins to change your way of seeing things and you get a front row seat to how God is changing lives, starting with your own, but then another people's. And in all these different ways, God begins to slowly open up for you the glory of who he is and who he's creating, who he's remaking you to be in his kingdom mission in the world. And it is exciting. It is joyous. Um... My times of deepest joy have come as a Christian. But that's not because it coincided. Like, when I was a Christian, this thing of great joy happened. That's true. But my times of deepest joy happened in my life because I was a Christian. And even things that happened to other people around me that I know were joyous, they were even more, uh, they, there was a greater density of joy, I believe, in what I experienced than some of my friends who, walking through the same things, uh, didn't have. You know, On my wedding day, I had more joy than non-Christian friends of mine had on their wedding day because I understood and I knew, as a Christian, God was bringing my wife and I together. There was something bigger happening than just two people falling in love, wanting to commit themselves to each other. That was a deeply joyous day for me. When my children were born, that was a, it was a different weight to that moment. As Because I was a Christian, because I realized God was entrusting Heather and I with these little lives. And I was being called to grow up in a lot of ways so that I could parent um, my children in the ways and the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. There have been times that I've had sitting around a table um, just laughing, like gut-bursting laughter with with Christian friends of mine um, that quite honestly... I, I can't be mirrored by times that I've had maybe with other Christian friends because there's a certain camaraderie and there's a certain understanding and you journey with some of these people and you realize God has done amazing things in our lives and it's, and it's, it's, it's something to celebrate and you just laugh because you can't even sometimes describe it. Your mouth is just filled with laughter. I've had those times. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that a Christian life is full of deep joy and it's a different layer of joy than exists when we're not walking with Christ, when God hasn't taken a hold of our hearts. But this is not a psalm of exaltation and praise. This is a psalm of lament, right? So the second movement of this psalm is where we shift to lament there's another thing that the psalm teaches us and it's something that everybody in this room probably needs to be reminded of or maybe confronted with for the first time and that is the Christian life is one of deep pain. The Christian life is one of deep joy but the Christian life is also one of deep pain. In verse four, the psalmist says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. I want to get back there. This is a plea. This is a very desperate plea. He's using the image and metaphor of the desert as this place of dry barrenness. The psalmist is no longer on the spiritual high. Things are no longer all coming together. I'm not living as in a dream. This feels a lot more like a nightmare. And it's been this way long enough that I'm calling out for streams in the Negev. That's a really uh, loaded metaphor. The Negev, if you, think of, if you know anything about the geography of, of Israel, Israel kind of runs north to south. It's kind of thin but long. And in the south is a de- desert region. And it, people at the time basically called the southern desert of Israel the Negev. It was just the southern. It's very dry. It's very bar- barren. Um, but it, it does have rainfall a few times a year. And what will happen during that rainfall is uh, up in some elevated spaces the rain will come and then the water will rush down and I was watching a video you can, you can YouTube streams in the Negev and it will show you a video where in the course of about 120 seconds there's a completely dry riverbed and then by the end of that 120 seconds there's a river flowing and it's a dangerous river it's not like a trickle or a stream if you were to stand in it you would be swept up and you would be killed because you wouldn't be able to get out of it it's, it's quite strong it's very very powerful But it happens very, very quickly. And the psalmist is saying, I'm in a really rough place, God. And I don't need your help like whenever you can get around to it. I need it right now. I need you to come to me like streams in the desert. I need you to overwhelm me because the place that I'm in, the pain that I'm in, the sorrow that I'm in, the spiritual dryness that I'm in, I don't know if I can take it much longer. I remember those days when you did something, but I'm not there anymore. Would you restore your fortunes? I want to get back to that place, God, but I'm not here now. If you think about a desert, a desert is dry. A desert is predominantly lifeless. It's a place where the pain of abandonment or alienation, you feel it um, pretty keenly in those spaces in your life. It's a place of disorientation and confusion. The life that you knew is over. I don't know what life holds for me anymore. I just know that where I am feels uncomfortable. I don't feel at home in my own skin. My life feels off. It feels awkward. It's a place of pain. It's a place of tears. The psalmist later talks about tears and carrying out tears. So we know this isn't just a place where it's like I'm bored or this isn't like I went from a 10 out of 10 with God and now I'm just like a a 6 out of 10. It's okay. The psalmist is like I'm at like a 1. I'm at a, a, a very low place. I've lost my job. My spouse has walked out on me. I feel completely far from God. I feel cut off from any kind of spiritual momentum. It doesn't matter what I seem to do. It's, I'm not, it's not going anywhere. Maybe death has claimed the life of a friend or a family member. Maybe life has just been very hard and very difficult for a very long time. Maybe it's just I knew life would be hard, but it's been hard for so long. I just feel parched. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to continue to take one more step forward. And I want to say to you today, if you're not a Christian, and maybe you're thinking about becoming a Christian, um, I want you to know that if you give your life over to Jesus, if you seek to honor him with your entire life, to live for him as the center of your life, no longer yourself, uh, you're going to experience deep pain and tears. It it will happen. You will go through dry, hard, painful places where disappointment and grief and sorrow, those feel like they're raining. Those are the things that feel like they're in control. The greatest times of sorrow in my Christian life have been during my time as a Christian. But again, not because... Well, this time of sorrow came, and I was a Christian, so they just happened to overlap. My greatest times of sorrow came because I was a Christian. They happened because I had given my life over to Christ. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, God is describing what he's going to do one day when he redeems and restores Israel, when his spirit gets poured out in all people, when he um, rescues and redeems those who are far from him one of the things he says he's going to do is he says, I'm going to take their heart of stone and I'm going to take that and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to take away their heart heartedness and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And what that means is that when you become a Christian, you have entered into the process of allowing God to soften your heart, of making your heart heartier. Heartier, not heartier. Heartier, more like a heart your heart becomes more like a heart when you become a Christian. God begins to soften your heart. Your heart doesn't become harder. And you know what that means? That means that you will experience more sorrow and more tears. Things will bother you about yourself, about the world, about dynamics that you see at play in your community that honestly you just wouldn't have cared about before. It wouldn't have mattered. It would have rolled off your back. Or you, would have been, or, or you would have dismissed it by, well, I'm, what are you going to do? That's life. Is what it is. As you grow in Christ, that way of, um, that defense mechanism of hardening the heart um, is the counter movement of what God wants to do in our lives. Um, not too long ago, Heather and I held a very close friends of ours, um, stillborn child in our arms. That was a tragedy. There were a lot of tears. Um, not just that day, but in the, the weeks that followed. That moment was more tearful and sorrowful because we were Christians. Because God had softened our hearts. Because we understood the depth of, what, of how big a tragedy this really was. When I had, when I had the experience, pastorally, of someone who's making momentum with God and they're pursuing Christ and they're growing and they're learning and they're vibrant and then something happens, they start to make small choices at first and then they compound and then begin to just walk away from their faith. That is uh, very heartbreaking to me. Would it have been before I was a Christian? Probably not. Someone kind of found a religion then they jettisoned it. Whatever. Life's about growth, right? Just things happen, whatever. People... But pastorally, because I know what Christ has done in me and what I, when I can see the potential of where God is moving someone, when they choose to resist that and to walk away from that, I don't just say, oh, it's what it is. Yeah. That's the way it goes for some people. My heart's broken. There's a kind of sorrow. There's a kind of, I don't know what to do with this. I remember there was a, an incident where I'd come back from a meeting with some key people um, Um, at our church, uh, previous church, and I was just completely broken. I remember I came home and Heather kind of understood what had happened and I just wept in her arms. And that was, I just completely let down. I I had nothing left. But I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't been a Christian. How it felt to me, it felt the way it did because of what God had done in my life and because of different things that were at play because this was a Christian community. Christianity is not stoicism. The spiritually mature people are not people in the church who just don't let things bother them. And the Psalms teach you that. The Psalms teach you that the spiritually mature are people who are very comfortable pouring out anger and hurt in front of God. One of the marks of a redeemed heart is that you get a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, and that means that you're going to be more sorrowful and you're going to have more tears. And I know that for some people that comes as a real shock or it's a disappointment because you're like, wait a second, I became a Christian for God's protection. I became a Christian because I thought God would make my life better. I wanted less tears. So... I've just kind of read and gravitated to materials that try and help me, allow God to help me. And I think a lot of people hold that assumption without realizing it. God is there to make my life better. And now my life isn't better. I was at a 10 out of 10, and I was like, yes, God, totally awesome. Mouth full of laughter, tongues of joy, awesome, songs of joy, love it. Of course I'll follow you, God. Oh, now I'm at a 1 out of 10, and it's like, this isn't actually supposed to be the script. But the psalmist says that is the script a lot of the time. A lot of the time, the right thing and the necessary thing is to face our pain and to go through it. I was thinking about it. I think think a lot of the expectations that people have around suffering are the church's fault sometimes we can talk about we can be so eager for people to come to know jesus or to wanting to get people to pursue jesus then we can make it sound like if you do that your life will just be upward mobility of spiritual joy it'll just be better and better and better awesome 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 we selectively pick a few bible verses that speak to that put it together and then we try and entice people into that way of living and jesus starts at a very different place if you would follow me, take up your party hat, because it's going to be super sweet. That's not what it says. Take up your cross and follow me. The central invitation to following Jesus is about moving into deeper sorrow and tears. That won't define your life, but it is the starting point, and it is a theme that you'll have to keep coming back to. But if we tell people And if we surround ourselves with ideas that most of the time, maybe not all of the time, most of the time the Christian life is super, super joy, joy, awesome, I think we create false expectations. And you can end up feeling very betrayed by God when you end up in a desert space, and you will end up in a desert space. Or you can end up feeling very betrayed by the people that told you it was going to be super awesome. Or you can feel guilty or angry at yourself Because you can think, well, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, so therefore, how did I screw up? What did I do wrong? Now, sometimes the Psalms are very honest in saying, my life is in a real pit, and I understand it's my sin that has got me there, so I'm trying to repent, God. I want to take ownership of that. But there's no note of repentance in this Psalm. This is just a plea to get back. This is just the Psalmist saying, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I'm I'm here. But if we have these false expectations of what it means to follow God, it can just lead to a lot of anger. And I've seen a lot of people walk away from their relationship with God when it started to get painful and sorrowful. And I understand why they did that. But the psalmist and the whole scripture is teaching us a different way. In Philippians 3, when Paul is talking about the kind of Christian that he wants to be and the kind of relationship with Jesus that he wants to have, he says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. That last part, hardly anybody reads or quotes. Or if they, it's selective memory. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's, like, I want to know a life of joy. I want to know a life where God is at work and it's obvious. And other people are looking at my life and saying, look what God is doing. And my life is filled with songs of joy and it's laughter and it's just awesome. It's just forward power momentum. And Paul says, I totally am open to knowing Christ like that. I want to know Christ because there's a way that you can know Christ only through the joy that you experience. But Paul says, I also want to know Christ through the participation of his sufferings. Now, I want you to think what Paul is actually praying slash asking for there. I want to know Jesus through participating in the sufferings that he endured. Abandonment, alienation, mockery, ultimately torture and death. Paul understood that there are certain things we can know about God that you can only learn in and through suffering. You can't read a book about it. You can't read someone's Twitter reflection on it. You can't outsource it. You've got to just go through the pain. You've got to face it. You come to know Christ and his will for your life absolutely through times of joy but wouldn't, if you're honest with yourself, wouldn't you say you've come to know Christ and his will for your life more through times of suffering? I'm not saying that was easy. I'm just saying, look at, look at how those two environments in your life play out. There is much, there's a greater depth and sincerity and focus in my spiritual life when I'm walking through something very difficult than when I was like one who dreamed. I was like one who is awesome. In verses 5 and 6, the psalmist says, sorrow and tears aren't necessarily a path to greater intimacy with God. He gives us a clue. God, through the psalmist, gives us a clue that you can, your tears and your sorrow can transform your life. God can use them, but you have to do something with them. They just, in and of themselves, they won't just do something. The psalmist says to do something very specific with your pain and with your tears, Before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. What do you do with your pain? Your rejection, your alienation, your abandonment, your anger, your frustration, your disappointment. What do you do with that? Some people stuff it. Just stiff upper lip, move ahead. Some people minimize it. It's not that big a deal. Some people um, try to overcome it. Joy the Lord is my strength. I'm going to declare things. I'm going to push through. Um, I'm I'm essentially denying or minimizing it, but I'm just using spiritual language to make it sound like I'm in a greater place of spiritual vibrancy than I actually feel. I'm trying to kind of spiritually, mind over matter, defeat my pain or my sorrow. And the psalmist says, no, don't deny your pain. Don't minimize it. Don't try and overcome it. Overcome it the psalmist says, what I want you to do is I want you to invest your pain. I want you to lament. Lament and lamentation is the process of bringing our pain before God and being honest with God and then investing our pain and our tears in God's presence. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, In verse five and six, the psalmist says that lament turns pain into Into joy. When we learn to lament, God um, actually, our tears become catalytic. They become the fuel through which God moves us into greater joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is a really brilliant insight that the psalmist offered. I'm very new to it, but I'm um, trying to integrate it into my life. He's trying to tell us that your tears have a tremendous power. Your sorrow has tremendous power. Look at the word picture. Um, Weeping is farming. A Farmer goes out to sow seed, which is to plant it in the ground, strategically and carefully invest it. What are the seeds? The seeds are his tears. He's carrying all these seeds, he's he's full of sorrow, and he's going to invest these tears, and then when the harvest comes in a few months, he's carrying back these baskets full of joy. He planted tears, and then the harvest wasn't more tears, the harvest was joy, and he brought it back. What's going on here? What's the Bible trying to tell us? It's saying that our tears and our sorrows... Produce joy if they're sown, if you invest them in God's presence. And that's important because that means our sorrow or our pain, what you're walking through right now isn't meant to just be endured. Just like, oh, it's just a hard season. I'm just going to kind of like wait it out. Your sorrow isn't meant to be endured. It is meant to be invested. You're supposed to do something with it. You're like, how do I do that? I don't know what that means. Well, the psalmist would say, sow your tears. This is... Um, what I've been slowly learning to do in my my own practice, in in my own life. This is what I think it means to sow your tears, to learn to lament. Number one, just find a psalm of lament. It might be Psalm 126, but it could be a lot of psalms. You can just Google psalms of lament and they will list them for you. And then you can look and you can find one that you're like, that speaks to what I'm going through. And you take that psalm And you just read it over and over. And you just get alone. You just get in a space where you can be with God. That might be out in nature. It could be in a room quietly by yourself. And then just lament. Allow yourself to feel the pain. Pray the psalm. Maybe you're going to sing it. Maybe you're just going to read through it over and over again. But especially pray through it. Let those words be your words. And the only language that I would have is just let yourself feel the full brunt of what you're feeling. A lot of us um, think that prayer, I think Eugene Peterson said this, our central temptation when it comes to prayer is assuming that prayer means getting alone with God and then saying nice things to God. There's certainly a time and a place for that. There's a time for exaltation and adoration, but there are also very importantly times for lament, times where we just get before God and say, God, I need to be very honest with you about where I'm at. And it's... um, I'm not gonna be saying nice things because I feel like my life has gone from a place of strength and vibrancy and now I'm heartbroken and I I don't know how to sing. I don't know how to teach these different parts. My heart is shattered and I don't know how to pick up the pieces and how any of this can turn into any kind of a song, but here I am. And I've taken five minutes, sometimes 10 minutes and I just try and pray through a specific situation and just feel it. And then I close that time, and I walk away. And I try and do that, especially if I'm walking through something painful, a few times a week, several times a month. And I don't want to set the expectation that that's some kind of magical process where it's like, oh, after you do that three times, it's great, the joy comes. It's not mechanical like that. But I think there's a difference when we bring formally our tears before God and our sorrow before God and we just say honestly God this is what's on my heart and it's okay to just leave that there to just lament and to say amen and I would encourage you to do that this week that even if you're not walking through something right now there's probably something that maybe you've never really even started the process to lament over maybe one of those things that I mentioned, maybe something that's known only to you, but you're like, I never really processed that in God's presence in prayer. I minimized it. I distracted myself. I just moved on. I tried to overcome it, but I didn't actually just sit with God and say, I'm brokenhearted here, God. Here are my tears, and I'm I'm just kind of (laughs) throwing them into the ground That that is your presence. No solutions. I'm not... We're not here to come up with a three-point plan. I'm just being real here. And I think we have to learn to do this. We have to learn to, to do some kind of process like this. We have to learn to lament. Because as one writer said, if you do not transform your pain, you will transmit it. You, your pain is never a neutral force in your life. If you don't um, learn to allow God to transform your pain through lament and through grief and through sowing your tears... There might be, I guess it's possible conceivably for a few months, maybe a few years to keep it localized, shut it away, harden your heart in different uh, parts, but what will happen eventually is that pain will just begin to, you'll just begin to express that pain to other people in your life. You'll transmit it. The most angry, cold, hard-hearted people in life um, are usually people who've never understood what to do with their pain. So they've used different mechanisms of rejecting, ignoring, overcoming, but then it bleeds out. You just can't hold it inside your heart. Those, you, those seeds aren't—you can't keep you can't keep holding it. It's too much. You have to invest it somewhere else, and the only safe place to invest it is in the presence of God. But I know that, is, that process is easier said than done because there are some people whose greatest obstacle to sowing their tears, to lamenting in the presence of God is their view of God. That's often people's biggest um, obstacle. It's the wall that prevents them from being honest with God, right? If you view God as a demanding judge, as a, cl- a kind of a closed, cold authority figure, as a detached but all-powerful creator, lament will probably not come easily to you or might not come at all. Because you can't lament. You can't just be emotionally and psychologically and spiritually naked and vulnerable in the presence of someone that you don't trust. Whether in human relationships, but certainly in your relationship with God. You can't do that. You won't do that. You'll have too much on the inside that's saying hold back, hold back, hold back. And you'll default to saying nice things to God. That's why it's so important to understand who it is that you're coming to when you are bringing your lament. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible talks about Jesus. One of Jesus' titles, his definitions, is that he's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with suffering, he's intimate with suffering. That comes out of a prophecy in Isaiah 53. Did you know that? If you read the Gospels, w- looking for it and watching for it, you will notice Jesus is crying all the time. Jesus is having his heart broken all the time. For a lot of us, the first Bible verse we ever memorized was John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. It's a good place to start. Pretty easy. But that theme comes through again and again in scripture. Jesus breaking down. Jesus brokenhearted. Jesus not... Never too quick to just kind of overcome the pain or spiritually minimize it. Jesus, your friend Lazarus is dead. Don't worry, God is good. God is good all the time. You won't find that in scripture. Jesus breaks down and cries. When John the Baptist is beheaded, Jesus has to go and isolate himself and lament in the presence of God. Jesus' heart gets broken again and again. And I love what someone said. I read their comment on this this week, and they said, Do you know why? Jesus cried so much? The chief reason Jesus cried so much was that he was perfect. That's why he cried so much. Because he didn't have a heart of stone. He had the perfect heart of flesh. Remember I remember Ezekiel's words, I'm going to take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Your heart will be softer because God is giving you his heart. And in Jesus we see the full manifestation of what it looks like if God were to walk into our world and be completely aware of all the human suffering outside and inside people's lives. And it broke his heart constantly. And I say that to encourage myself and to encourage you to understand that it is completely safe to pour out your heart before Jesus in God's presence. That is, that is, that is a, you'll never find a safer place. There isn't a friend who could receive your tears in a more understanding way than Jesus could. When you come to God in prayer, you're not connecting with some detached being who has no concept of suffering. You are coming before a wounded king and a king of sorrows. John Stott, you'll probably hear this quote several times cause, um, every year because I, I just think it's amazing. John Stott, when he was talking about the cross and about this God who suffers and how that changes how he approaches him, this is what he wrote in his book, the Cro- in his book Cross. I could never myself believe in God if it weren't for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wretched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness, darkness. This is the God from me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this. There is still a question and a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. And then he ends with this poem. The other gods of the world, they were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to your throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds but you alone. The Christian life is one of deep joy. Drink in and relish those times. They are a gift. But the Christian life is also one of deep pain. My encouragement to all of us would be, let's not waste that pain. Let's invest it. Invest them by learning to lament in God's presence. Learning to bring them before the one whose wounds and tears can speak to yours And let him transform our tears into new songs of joy. Let's pray. God, teach us to sing. Teach us to sing songs of great joy, God, but also teach us to sing songs of lament. In your name, amen.